Hi, and welcome to Halfwood History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. And sometimes not so long ago. Yeah. So we are continuing our streak of doing every other week. So do we have any updates? I don't think so. Then let's get right into Kylie's seven pages of notes. <laughs> it's really like six and like a little tiny mini paragraph, but whatever. <laughs> All right. So we are going to take a little trip in that uh, lovely time warp and go back to 1483. And I'm going to put on a bit of my Agatha Christie hat today and see if I can solve a mystery. Mystery. Yes, a mystery. So on April 9th, 1483, King Edward IV of England died, leaving his 12-year-old son Edward, now Edward V, to succeed him. This abrupt death set in motion one of the greatest mysteries slash conspiracy theories in English history. Ooh. Yes. So news reached Edward V of his father's demise on Monday, April 14th of 1483, five days after the actual death. Edward's will, which had not survived, nominated his trusted brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, as protector during the minority of his son, a.k.a. like the power behind the throne, essentially, of a child ruler. All right. Yeah. Um, and that was fairly common practice back then. And honestly, probably now, if we and like anyone ended up with a child ruler, usually you have an adult to help them rule when they are not old enough to really make educated decisions. We currently have a child ruler and the entire playground is helping instead of an adult, so. Shots fired. Okay. Anyway, so his brother is protector now, right? Um, This was probably the first mistake. Both the new king and his party from uh, the West met Richard in the North, setting out for London. They met up in Stony Stratford, Buckinghamshire. Having Edward meet up with Richard on their travels to London was probably the second mistake. They began the trip to London together, and on the night of April 29th, they met and dined with Edward's uncle, Anthony Woodville, the Earl of Rivers, and Edward's half-brother, Richard Gray, who was his mother's son from her first marriage. But the following morning, the Earl of Rivers and Richard Gray, along with the King's Chamberlain, Thomas Vaughan, were arrested and sent north. The young king reportedly protested this, but the remainder of his entourage was dismissed, and Richard escorted him to London with his own men. Earl Rivers, Richard Gray, and Thomas Vaughan were all subsequently executed on June 25th. And if this isn't starting to sound like a coup, I don't know what does. What well, well. This prompted Elizabeth Woodville... Uh, to take her other son, Richard, Duke of York, and her daughters into sanctuary at Westminster Abbey, presumably for all of their lives. Um, Upon their arrival in London on May 19th, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, had his 12-year-old nephew and king take up residence in the Tower of London, which was actually then the traditional residence of monarchs prior to their coronation. So at that point, all monarchs spent time in li- like essentially lived in the Tower of London before they were crowned and took up residence like in like the king's chambers kind of thing. Okay. Uh, but one could also argue that any time spent in the Tower of London was pretty much being imprisoned. It depends on how you look at it. Okay. <laughs> um, so on June 16th, he's joined by his nine-year-old brother, Richard, the Duke of York. Um, the Dowager Queen had been persuaded to hand him over to the Archbishop of Canterbury so that he could attend his brother Edward's coronation which was still conceivably planned for June 22nd. However, once Richard had the younger Richard in his clutches, the coronation was postponed indefinitely. And I'm definitely kind of painting a little bit of a picture because I have my own opinions on this. Um, As one can imagine, child rulers could be very difficult, which is why an adult relative was frequently appointed as the protector. However, history has also shown that fairly frequently, those adults who are appointed to help the child ruler sometimes decide they would make a better ruler than said child. Potentially for this reason, Edward V's council, presumably the same council that had served his father, had hoped for an immediate coronation, which would help avoid the need for a protectorate. There was precedent for this as well, as Richard II was crowned king at the age of 10, and Henry VI, whose protectorate which uh, started when he inherited the crown at nine months, ended with his coronation at the age of seven. So once crowned, the child king was like the ruler and like he had counselors and such. But 
not a protectorate that essentially ruled for him. Okay. Right. So Richard, however, repeatedly postponed the coronation, and it would appear that he was waiting for something. A clergyman is said to have been inform- to have informed Richard that Edward IV's marriage to Elizabeth Woodville was invalid because Edward had already been contracted to marry the Lady Eleanor Butler when he married Elizabeth Woodville, thereby rendering his marriage to Elizabeth invalid and their children together illegitimate. Uh-oh. Yep, you can see where this is going, right? No, I don't. Oh, okay, it's all foggy? Yeah. All right. I you don't probably... know anything about old monarchies. I was so. say, you have not spent nearly as much time as I have studying, like, inheritance and, like, English succession. <laughs> I honestly don't even know what the importance of the Tower of London is. You said that oh. it's like a prison all the time, and I have no idea what that means. Oh, it... Uh, okay, Um. so the Tower of London was... Now it's, like, a tourist attraction, but... Back then, in like medieval and Renaissance times, it was essentially where nobles were held when imprisoned because they couldn't, nobles had different standing than commoners. So, like, they couldn't technically go to jail, but like they could be imprisoned. So, the Tower of London, London was basically a like luxury prison. Okay. Um, but a lot of people died in the Tower of London. Um, it's where Anne Boleyn stayed, lived like for until she was uh, beheaded. Um, it's where Catherine Howard lived before she was beheaded. Um, it's where Elizabeth I was actually held during her sister Mary's reign because her sister Mary couldn't decide if she wanted to behead her sister or not, essentially. Okay, so it's where rich people kill rich people. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh it's usually reserved for like the high and mighty and those who like are conceivably above the law. Okay. Yeah. So the identity of said informant um known only through the memoirs of the French diplomat Philippe de Comines was Robert Stillington, the bishop of Bath and Wells. So on June 22nd um, a clergyman named Ralph Shaw preached a sermon declaring Edward IV's children bastards and Richard as the rightful king. And just what he was waiting for. Um, if the boys were illegitimate, then Edward had no claim to the throne, making Richard the rightful king. The children of his older brother George, Duke of Clarence, had been barred from the throne by their father's attainder, um, and in English law, an attainder was a metaphorical stain or corruption of blood, which arose from being condemned for a serious capital crime, like felony or treason. It entailed losing not only one's life, property, and hereditary titles, but it also eliminated the right to pass those any of that those titles onto your heirs. So basically, if your father was attained, you had no standing anymore. Oh, right. It, like, destituted entire families. And if you were, like, a cousin or, like, a sibling, it ruined you, too. Hmm. Um, it was pretty much a way to just wipe out an entire noble family in one go. Um, once attained, a noble was essentially a commoner, and they could be tortured and then put to death. So in the case of the Duke of Clarence, he was executed for treason against his brother Edward IV during the Wars of the Roses, and on June 25th, an assembly of lords and commons declared Richard to be the legitimate king. And that was later confirmed by the, an act of parliament called the uh, Titulus Regis, which like was necessary for this kind of thing. So the following day, he ascended the throne as King Richard III. So now that we have the uh, concrete events in place, let's talk a little bit about what happened to the brothers. Break it down. Yeah. So Dominic... Mancini was an Italian who visited England in the the 1480s and witnessed the events leading up to Richard's claiming of the crown. He reported that Edward and his younger brother Richard were taken into the inner apartments of the tower and then were seen less and less until the the end of the summer of 1483 when they disappeared from the public view altogether. During this period, Mancini records that Edward was regularly visited by a doctor who reported that Edward quote, like a victim prepared for sacrifice, sought remission of his sins by daily confession and penance because he believed that death was facing him. Edward and his brother Richard's fate after their disappearance remain unknown, 
But the most widely accepted theory is that they were murdered on the orders of their uncle, King Richard III. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. So their deaths may have occurred sometime in 1483, but apart from their disappearance, the only evidence is circumstantial. Like, they don't even know, like, they haven't even definitively identified bodies or anything like that. Mm. It's just a mystery. So as a result, several hypotheses about their fates have been proposed. There are reports of the two princes being seen playing in the tower grounds shortly after Richard joined his brother, but there are no recorded sightings of either of them after the summer of 1483. There was even an attempt to rescue them in late July, but it failed. Many historians believe the princes were murdered, and some suggest that the act may have happened towards the end of the summer. Maurice Keane argued that the rebellion against Richard in 1483 initially quote, aimed to rescue Edward V and his brother from the tower before it was too late, but that when the Duke of Buckingham became involved, it shifted to support of Henry Tudor because, quote, Buckingham almost certainly knew that the princes in the tower were dead. It's very possible that Richard felt his position was too unstable with two other viable heirs sitting in the tower and then had them killed. Another historian, Clements Markham, suggests that the princes may have been alive as late as July 1484, pointing to the regulations issued by Richard III's household, which stated, quote, the children should be together at one breakfast. However, James Gardner, another historian, argues that it's unclear to whom the phrase the children alludes, and it might not have been a reference to the princes at all. Uh, The instructions were for Richard's household, and he actually had several children that were in his care. Okay. Um, Edward, the Earl of Warwick, who is the son of the Duke of Clarence, so his other nephew, um, and Edward the Forest's two youngest daughters, Catherine and Bridget, were all living under Richard's uh, care at Sheriff Hutton at this time. So conceivably, it meant them and not the two princes who theoretically were living in the tower this whole time. So they wouldn't have been part of his household. So despite the wide belief that Edward and Richard were murdered, beyond their disappearance, there's no direct evidence that they had been murdered, and there's no reliable, well-informed, independent, or impartial sources to like co- collaborate any sort of theory. Um, nevertheless, rumors quickly spread that they had indeed been murdered, and only one contemporary narrative account of the boys' time in the Tower exists, that of Dominic Mancini. However... Mancini's account was not discovered until 1934. That's a while. Yes, it's a while. And that's a very long time for a lot of theories to emerge. So it was in the municipal library in Lille um, and just somehow ended up there. But then again, especially in Europe, people are finding really, really old documents all the time that have just somehow been like shoved together with other stuff in like where you would least expect them to be. So it happens when you have a very long and uh, conquesting history. Yes, <laughs> exactly. There was a really long period of time for rumors and different theories to run amok. Later accounts written after the accession of Henry, uh, accession of Henry Tudor are often claimed to have been biased or have been influenced by Tudor propaganda, especially because Richard III's death ultimately ended the Wars of the Roses, and Henry VII, a.k.a. Henry Tudor, was crowned king as the victor. So, you know, the victor writes the history. Yep. So, who knows? Basically, what this all means is that there's a lot of mystery and biases going on. Generally speaking, most historians believe that the princes were murdered, and the most likely culprit was Richard III although it probably wasn't directly by his hand. Although the princes had been eliminated from the succession by, like, law, Richard's hold on the monarchy was very insecure due to the way in which he had attained the crown, a.k.a. coup, leading to a backlash against him by the Yorkist establishment, the Tudors. It's important to remember here that the Wars of the Roses had been fought on and off since about 1455, so any insecurity in his position was extremely dangerous. And in the same context, having a child ruler with the House of Lancaster looking for any crack was also dangerous. Additionally, that attempt to rescue them only made it clearer that they would remain a threat to Richard's throne as long as they were alive. So despite Richard's protestations of the rumors that he murdered the princess, he never attempted to prove that they were alive by having them seen in public, which strongly suggests that they were in fact dead. 
at that point. He also failed to open any investigation into the matter, which would have been in his best interest if he was not actually responsible for their deaths, (laughs) because it would have helped prove that he didn't do it. It seems like bad people like to just kind of hide things that would be very clear proof. Yes. Yes, they do. (laughs) A lot, like all throughout history. So at the time of the prince's disappearance, Richard was away from court on procession. So if they were murdered, then he couldn't have physically done it. However, they were under guard in the Tower of London, which was controlled by his men. And access to them was strictly limited by his instructions. He could therefore have dispatched one of his retainers to murder the princes on his behalf. But it's unlikely they could have been murdered without his knowledge. Um, And it bears reasoning here that he was also the one with the most to gain from their deaths. So plausible. Yeah. Take that as you will. (laughs) Um, This is the version put forward by Thomas More and Polydor Virgil, who both name James uh, Tyrell as the murderer. I keep wanting to say Tyrell like um, House Tyrell King Game of Thrones. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It could be Tyrell. We're going to go with Tyrell because I can say it better. Um, Tyrell was arrested by Henry VII's forces in 1502 for supporting another Yorkist claimant to the throne. Shortly before his execution, Tyrell said is said by Thomas More to have admitted under torture, which is not the best way to get someone to actually admit the truth because most of the time they'll say whatever you want them to. But he admitted under torture to having murdered the princes on the behest of Richard III. Moore wrote the history of King Richard III, circa 1513. <laughs> I don't know what date it is. It's fine. It's quarantine. Um, which is the only record of this confession is what he wrote of what he heard. Um, again, to the victor goes the spoils. Yep. Um, In it, Moore wrote that during his examination, Tyrell made his confession as to the murder, saying that Richard III ordered their deaths. He also claimed that the princes were smothered to death in their beds by two agents of Tyrell. But he um, there was one source that suggested who they were, but I don't I couldn't really find any like affirmative stuff. So like it's all hearsay at this point. I mean, this whole thing is hearsay at this point. Yeah. Um, so despite further questioning, however, he was unable to say where their bodies were, claiming that they had been buried, quote, at the stair foot, neatly deep in the ground under a great heap of stones. Um, but he also said that they were later disinterred and buried in a secret place. Um, so this version of events is accepted by some historians, and Michael Hicks notes that his successful career and rapid promotion after 1483 is consistent with his alleged murder of the princes like aka tyrell because he went leaps and bounds ahead of probably where he should have ended up right um so conceivably it was a little bit as compensation for keeping richard's secret um however the only record of tyrell's confession is through more and there are no actual written down confession to be found anywhere else other historians cast doubts on the accuracy of moore's account suggesting that he may have elaborated on circulating rumors or even have fabricated the story entirely anything to save your neck yeah well it's also pertinent to recognize that moore was um one of the very close confidants of henry the eighth for a long time okay um and he actually ended up being lord high chancellor which was a very, very prominent position. Um, so fifteen thirteen, he was working on his ascent to this position of to loftiness. Power. Yeah. yeah. So it's uh it stands to reason that there's a little bit of like um sucking up going on as well. Mm-hmm. And I mean, no one knew, so what harm did it do to point fingers? Additionally, the only known contemporary account wasn't known at the time, Mancini's records so more really wasn't working with great or potentially any first-hand accounts so his history is generally based on secondary sources and rumors and if there's one thing i've learned as a historian and archivist it's primary sources are very important uh-huh mm-hmm. so yeah so something based entirely on rumors and second second-hand stories 
really, I don't think counts as a history. Say it ain't so. <laughs> Personally. <laughs> um, so Richard's guilt was widely accepted by his contemporaries. George Selly, Dominic Mancini, John Rue, F- uh, Fabian's Chronicle, the Crowlin Chronicler, and the London Chronicle all noted the disappearances of the disappearance of the princes, and all except for Mancini, who noted that he had no knowledge of what had happened, all repeated rumors naming Richard as the murderer. So, like, it was widely circulating that Richard had killed his nephews. Like, no one was making a secret that they believed it. Like, it was, like, so hard of a rumor that it was essentially fact at this point. Ah. Yeah, it was, like, there was no proof, but everyone believed it. The Chancellor of France named Richard as the murderer to the estate general um, in Tours on January 1484, urging them to take warning from the fate of the princes as their own king, Charles VII, was only 13. So, like, he was warning them to watch out because the same thing could happen here. So, like, don't let his older, like, don't let his uncle take care of him. Wink, wink. (laughs) Could end poorly. Uh, several international reports stated that Richard had the princes killed before he took the crown. However, they were all written after Richard's death and may have had some biased agendas. It also appears to have been the belief of Elizabeth Woodville, their mother, who would go on to support Henry Tudor in his campaign against Richard III. One possible motive for Elizabeth Woodville's uh, making peace with Richard later on and bringing her daughters out of sanctuary could be that Richard had to swear a solemn oath before witnesses to protect and provide for her surviving children, which would make it much less likely that they could be quietly murdered as it had been believed that their brothers had been. Just thrown in a tower and forgotten about. Yeah, it yeah, it very much like that public entrustment of them made it much more made it more safe, honestly, for them. Um also, like at this point. I don't remember if they had other sons, but I know he had like, there were like four or five daughters or something like that. So, I mean, the girls weren't a threat at all, theoretically, but like not, definitely not in the same way that the two like oldest boys would have been. Right. So, um, the girls were probably safer in general. Maybe the one time it was better to be a girl. Um, so there was no formal accusation against Richard III on the matter. The Bill of Attainder brought by Henry VII made no definitive mention of the princes in the tower, but it did accuse Richard of, quote, the unnatural, mischievous, and great perjuries, treasons, homicides, and murders in shedding of infant's blood with many other wrongs, odious offenses, and abominations against God and man. That sounds way worse than the first thing you said. <laughs> Yeah, well, so the shedding of infants' blood, that's part of that, may be an accusation of the prince's murder. Yep. Because, like, to my knowledge, like, there were no other thoughts that he murdered kids. So, like, this probably would have been the only children that he could potentially have had a hand in their deaths. So... It wasn't, like, a direct accusation, but it was pretty heavily implied. But, I mean, by the time Henry VII put out this bill of attainder richard was dead yeah so like it didn't Doesn't matter, matter anymore him. yeah really it mattered to everyone else potentially but it did not matter to him so <laughs> oh god um one historian speculated that it was a reference to speeches made in parliament condemning the murder of the princes which suggested that richard's guilt had become common knowledge or at least common wisdom so everybody knew um however there are other theories And one other theory is that Henry Stafford, the second Duke of Buckingham, murdered the princes. Prior to October 1483, Buckingham had been Richard's right-hand man. However, he appeared to have had some sort of falling out with Richard because in October, he joined with Henry Tudor. Ah. Yeah, he switched sides abruptly. Um, So he, with the help of Henry Tudor and, you know, a whole host of other men... um, led a rebellion against Richard, but he was executed for treason by Richard on November 2nd. <laughs> Lots of heads rolling. So it was a very short-lived and unsuccessful campaign. <laughs> um, for Buckingham to have been responsible for the prince's murders, it would have had to have happened prior to his beheading 
because I don't think a beheaded man can kill children. Are you sure? I mean, maybe his ghost pushed him out a window. Who knows? His motivation could have been from ver- for various reasons. Buckingham was a descendant of Edward III through John of Gaunt, the first Duke of Lancaster, and Thomas Woodstock, the first Duke of Gloucester, on his father's side, as well as through John of Gaunt again through John Buford, son of John of Gaunt, on his mother's side. Sorry, there's a lot of like uh, first generation intermarrying going on in here too. So <laughs> I had to double I had to double check when I saw John of Gaunt multiple times. As they do in yield and yes, times. Yes, well. Yes. So because of his direct descendancy from Edward III, he might have hoped to accede to the throne himself. Another thought is that he could have been acting through an unknown third party or potentially on Richard's orders. Maybe that's what caused the falling out between them. Um, a contemporary Portuguese document. Portuguese. Yeah. Um, suggests that Buckingham uh, was the guilty party stating, quote, and after the passing away of King Edward in the year 1483, another one of his brothers, the Duke of Gloucester, had in his power the Prince of Wales and the Duke of York, the young sons of the said king, his brother, and turned them to the Duke of Buckingham, under whose custody the said princes were starved to death. So, fingers have been a flying. A document dated some decades after the disappearance was found in the archives of the College of Arms in London in 1980, so like a long time later, that stated, uh, it stated that the murder was the vise of the Duke of Buckingham, which led Michael Bennett, a historian, to suggest that possibly some of Richard's prominent supporters, like Buckingham and James Tyrell, murdered the princes of their own initiative without waiting for Richard's orders. Bennett noted in support of this theory, quote, after the king's departure, Buckingham was in, in effective command of the capital. And it is known that when the two men met a month later, there was an unholy row between them. So they fought and they fought hard. So it's plausible that Buckingham killed the princes without Richard's knowledge, potentially hoping, hoping to further secure his throne. Okay. So it could have been like, well, you're keeping them alive and that's a danger to you. So if I just take care of the problem, you'll thank me for it later. But he did not get thanked for it later. I so, see. But I mean, it's also conceivable that Richard asked him to kill them and he was like, the heck is wrong with you? And switched sides. Yeah. So who knows? There are a couple of pitfalls with this reasoning, however. First of all, if he were guilty of acting without Richard's orders, it's extremely surprising that Richard didn't just lay the blame for their murder at his feet um, because he was disgraced and executed. So Richard could potentially have cleared his own name by doing that. Secondly, it's likely he would have required Richard's help to gain access to the princes since they were under close guard in the Tower of London with Richard's men. Although, again, as noted, it's possible that as the Constable of England, he might have been exempt from that like ruling of getting too close to them. So he could have been able to be like, well, I'm the Constable of England, let me in. And the guards would have, like, parted the way. Right. One possibility is that Richard didn't immediately disclose Buckingham's guilt, if he was, in fact, guilty, because there's no possible way people would have ever believed that Richard wasn't also involved. Mm. However, it's extremely unlikely that Buckingham would have acted without Richard's consent, or at least the implication of consent. So, like, maybe a hint dropped here or something said offhand that Buckingham went, you want me to kill them. Okay, done. I just want to strangle those boys. Well, got it. No. Gotcha. Oh, no. No, wait, no. Stop. Halt. That's not what I meant. I mean, I say I want to strangle Bilbo all the time, but I would never do it. Oh, hey, Bilbo. She said but, it. Here you I know. come. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Buckingham, stop. <laughs> you know, but when you're king, things said offhand like that can be taken the wrong way. Mm-hmm. So when you're in a position of power, you need to think about what you say before you say it. Just saying that. Just throw that out there. Absolutely not topical. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> another theory is that Henry VII had the boys killed after he defeated Richard and claimed the throne. He had eliminated some of the other people who held a shaky claim to the throne. So it's quite possible he wouldn't have thought twice about murdering two children because, you know, what's killing two kids after you've killed a whole heck of a ton of people during wars? So um, Henry was, however, out of the country between their disappearance in August 
and August of 1485. So his only opportunity to murder them would have been after his coronation in 1485, which would have meant that they would have been living for like two, two and a half years or something like that in the Tower of London with no one having seen them, which seems unlikely. Yeah. Um, to shore up his claim to the throne, Henry married Elizabeth of York, who was the prince's elder sister, not wanting the legitimacy of his wife or her claim as heir to Edward IV called into question. Prior to the marriage, he had repealed the Titleist Regius, which had been the thing that declared the princes and Elizabeth as illegitimate. So he basically reinstated, essentially, he heightened their claim to the throne, but at this point, they were gone. Right. No one like no one had seen them in two years, so worse the danger, I guess. Um, this theory suggests that the princes were executed by Henry's order, not Richard, who then began circulating rumors that Richard had killed his nephews before he was deposed by Henry. It also coincides with Henry's decision in early 1487 to confiscate all of Elizabeth Woodville's lands and possessions and to have her confined to Bermondsey Abbey. Possibly as a way to keep her silent. Hmm, suspicious. Hmm. Most historians, however, agree that Elizabeth likely removed herself there voluntarily because that was actually fairly common practice. Um, especially like if you didn't really have any other means, but she like he confiscated her land and her possessions. So it, it stands to reason that she would go somewhere where she would be safe, which an abbey is a perfect place. <laughs> yep. Especially when you're a woman and uh, like at this point, unmarried woman and former queen so like being on your own you're essentially a political pawn at this point so the safest place is in the protection of the church right so henry was also never accused of the murder by any of his contemporaries and not even by his enemies which he likely would have been um if there had been any possibility of his guilt like people would have jumped on it especially those who opposed him so it seems pretty unlikely that Henry was actually behind their deaths. There's another possible explanation, illness that led to death. In the period before they disappeared from sight, Mancini records that Edward was regularly visited by a doctor. Um, as I mentioned before, the whole uh, thinking that death was facing him thing. Right. So it's very possible that Edward or Richard or both died from an illness or by the uh, medieval attempts to cure an illness. Personally, I think either Richard or illness were what did them in. Um, it's also possible that one of them died and the other one lived longer. And we'll actually get a little bit to that in a minute. Actually, right now. <laughs> I had to turn the page. <laughs> so during the reign of Henry VII, there were two individuals who claimed to be Richard, Duke of York, the younger brother. Um, and they claimed to have escaped the tower. One was named, uh, his real name was Lambert Simnel, who initially claimed to be Richard, but then changed his story and claimed to be Edward Planted, uh, Plantagenet, the seventh Earl of Warwick. The other claimant was Perkin Warbeck, who claimed to have escaped to Flanders after his uncle's defeat, so Rich, after Richard III was killed um, and Henry ascended the throne, um, and he, was, he claims to have been raised by his aunt there. So Margaret of York, the Duchess of Burgundy, and the sister to both Edward IV and Richard III formally recognized Warbeck as Richard, um, and actually so did James IV of Scotland. So he had some uh, pretty big prominent players who were actually supporting him. Um, Margaret, Richard III's sister, an unrelenting opponent of Henry VII had previously recognized Simnel as Richard, um, presumably before he changed his mind and claimed to be Edward Plantagenet. Plant Plantagenet, geez. I have a really hard time with that name. Yeah, you were. Yeah. So uh, Warbeck showed up in Ireland calling himself Richard IV, but after a failed attempt to invade England, he was captured, he retracted his claims, and was executed. Womp womp. Yeah. However, there could one day be a bit of closure to this mystery. In 1674, some workmen were remodeling the Tower of London and dug up a wooden box that contained two small human skeletons. Ooh. Yeah. The bones were found buried 10 feet under the staircase leading to the chapel of the White Tower. 
Remember how Thomas More wrote that Tyrell claimed that the boys were buried at the stair foot? Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't actually the first children's bones to be dug up in the Tower of London, surprisingly. Or Are you sure it's surprising? Not surprisingly, uh-huh. yeah. Um, the bones of two children had previously been found, quote, in an old chamber that had been walled up and could conceivably have also been the prince's. The first set of bones were believed to be the prince's because of Moore's claim. However, he also wrote that they had been moved to a better place, which wouldn't match the, with the, the first set of remains. So one anonymous report was that the two were found with, quote, pieces of rag and velvet about them. And the velvet could indicate that the bodies were those of aristocrats because commoners wouldn't have had velvet. Right. Um, however, the Tower of London was pretty much reserved for noble prisoners. So, mm-hmm. like, it would stand to reason that likely most people who were held there would have had, you know, some sort of finery. Yeah. Um, so the bones were placed in an urn, and on the orders of King Charles II, they were interred in Westminster Abbey, where a monument designed by Christopher Wren marks the resting place of the supposed princes. Apparently, not willing to let the mystery lie, in 1933, the bones were exhumed by the archivist of Westminster Abbey, Lawrence Channer, a leading anatomist, Professor William Wright, and the president of the Dental Association, George Norcroft. So by measuring certain bones and teeth, they concluded that the bones belonged to two children around the correct ages for the princes. Um, the examination discovered that many of the bones were actually missing, that they had been carelessly combined with bones of other animals, like chickens and stuff, and the workmen that had found the bodies had actually broken a lot of the bones Whoops. like by like rough handling. And I mean, they had been buried for at least 200 years at that point, yeah. so like fragile yeah they probably weren't in the best condition and probably the workmen did not care that much so the examination has been criticized on the grounds that it was conducted under the presumption that the bones were in fact those of the princes and it pretty much concentrated only on whether the bones showed evidence of suffocation um and any attempt to to like collaborate that opinion um no attempt was even made to determine whether the bones were male or female so like Definitely, like, a very narrow target trying to be reached. Yep. Um, Best practice would have been to be like, we should identify who these are with no preconceived notions. Here are all the possibilities. Let's narrow it down. Mm -hmm. Rather than, this is the princess, and we have to find any evidence that supports it. Right. That's just bad science. So there have been calls in recent years to try to DNA test the bones, And an online petition was actually started, but it closed before it reached the number of signatures required to go before Parliament. However, as several historians have pointed out, even if modern DNA and carbon dating proved the bones belonged to the princes, it would it would not prove who or what had killed them. Right. So that would still be a mystery. So the other possibility in 1789, workmen carrying out repairs at St. George's Chapel in Windsor rediscovered and accidentally broke into the vault of Edward IV and Queen Elizabeth Woodville, discovering in the process what appeared to be a small adjoining vault. This vault was found to contain the coffins of two unidentified children, and it was inscribed with the names of two of Edward IV's children, George, first Duke of Bedford, who had died at the age of two, and Mary of York, who had died at the age of 14. However, no inspection or examination was carried out and the tomb was resealed. The twist is during the excavation for the Royal tomb house of George the third under the Woolsey tomb house in 1810 to like between 1810 and 1813, two lead coffins clearly labeled as George Plantagenet and Mary Plantagenet, which was like, would have been like the family name for the, the kid, the, the kids who didn't have like official titles. Yep were subsequently discovered somewhere else in the chapel. Can't have two of the same dead kids. Yeah. These were moved into the adjoining vault of Edward IV, but at the time, no effort was made to identify the two coffins that were already in the vault. Suspicious, if you ask me. In the late 1990s, work was carried out near and around Edward IV's tomb, 
The floor area was excavated to replace an old boiler and to add a new repository for the remains of future deans and canons of Windsor. And they found more copies of these children? <laughs> no. Um, but a request was forwarded to the dean and canons of Windsor to consider a possible examination of the two vaults, either by fiber optic camera or, if possible, a re-examination of the two unidentified coffins in the tomb. Royal consent would be necessary to open any royal tomb, so it was felt that it was best to leave this medieval mystery unsolved for the time being. However, in 2012, the University of Leicester and... Probably Leicester. L-E-I-C-E-S-T-E-R? Yeah, probably Leicester. Leicester. The University of Leicester and the Leicester City Council in association with the Richard III Society, announced that they had joined forces to begin a search for the remains of King Richard III. Experts set out to locate the lost site of the former Greyfriars Church, which was demolished during Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries, you know, the whole break from the Catholic Church thing. Yep. And to discover whether his remains were still interred there, which is where Henry VII claimed they were. They found the church, and they found a skeleton that was actually buried under the parking lot. Um, and it was situated approximately where Richard was believed to have been hastily buried. Oh, I kind of remember hearing, a, seeing a news article. About yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. So on February 4th, 2013, the University of Leicester, that's it. There you go. The University of Leicester confirmed that the skeleton was beyond reasonable doubt that of King Richard III. This conclusion was based on mitochondrial DNA evidence. It was tested against the DNA of the son of a 16th generation great niece of the king who is in the same direct matrilineal line. Um, So you need that like direct connection to have like the most solid results and like comparisons. Yep. Um, As well as soil analysis, dental tests and physical characteristics of the skeleton, which are highly consistent with contemporary accounts of Richard's appearance. Supposedly, um, he had like scoliosis a little bit. So one of his shoulders was actually lower than the other. Um, Although some people, there were some accounts that it was like really obvious. And then there were other accounts that were like, I know one is shorter, but I don't remember which one. Yeah. So, like, it was something that you were like, oh, like, it's a little offsided, but it's not a big deal. Humans like to exaggerate. Exactly, yeah. So, this skeleton matched a lot of those presumptive things. This discovery prompted new and renewed interest in re-excavating the skeletons of the two princes, but Queen Elizabeth II has not granted the approval required for any such testing of any interred royal. So, because Richard III... They weren't sure it was him they could do it, but if you've been, you know, buried in, like, royal vaults, like, tomb kind of thing, you need royal approval to exhume. Yep. Um, so someday, maybe, she or a future monarch will grant approval, and the mystery of the princes in the tower will be laid to rest once and for all. Hmm. But for now, it all remains a mystery. And what's your hot take? Which one I think of Richard those? did it. You think Richard did it? I think I think Richard killed his nephew. She's coming for you, Richard. Yeah. Well, he's long gone. <laughs> I mean, it's to me, it's the most plausible because he had the most to gain and like the most to lose. Yeah. So like high risk, high reward. Exactly. So like it, and like from like a practical perspective, I can un, I could conceivably see why. Especially in that kind of situation where, like, everything's volatile, nothing is safe, having a child ruler is not a great idea in, like, such a, like, drastically changing world that's, like, still at war. I could I could see where the thought would come, well, if I were in charge, everything would be a lot easier, and then you slip down a slippery slope into murdering your nephews. I just find it funny that I I recently did an episode on barbarian kings and barbarian kings just said, child ruler, go to your house upstate. We'll pay you some an allowance and just stay there. Which is Bar- honestly what should have been Barbarians didn't murder their kind. Yeah. But English nobility does. Oh, Europeans period did. Yeah. Like that was not uncommon. Yeah. That Barbarians a child ruler would be more deposed. civil. Surprisingly, I'm not surprised. Um, but yeah, I, I think Richard did it. 
I I I can't imagine anyone wanting like anyone having enough reason other than him to get rid of two kids who were already in the Tower of London. Yeah. Like they were already in his control. They had nowhere to go. Like and one a rescue attempt had already failed, potentially because they were already dead. So Probably. Like, That's a good thought. Yeah, so who knows? So yeah, I think Richard did it. That's All my hot right. take. <laughs> but I definitely came on strong at the beginning with like definitely some like side eye at Richard from the get go. So. Yes. It was a little obvious. Even though I yeah, had well, no idea what you were talking about for a little bit. I very clearly did not like Richard. Well, I don't like anyone who like usurp someone else like i don't know especially someone who like technically they inherited the crown rightfully and then you decided no i want it more or i deserve it more get out of my way now i'm gonna kill you some would call that ambition this is why i'm not a slytherin (laughs) (laughs) but yeah that's uh that is the princes in the tower very cool I was actually very excited that we were that we're doing this the like back and forth every other because it meant that I could jump into a topic that I knew was going to be a little heftier. Yeah. So and uh, listeners, like if you like this better than us both doing a topic, kind of like not half-assed, obviously, but <laughs> half, like half length. Yeah. Let us know, like through Twitter or Facebook or email of which yes, I'll get to please. pretty soon. Yes. But y- but give us feedback on this format because us doing um every other once we catch up, if we continue this, it'll give us each more time to do our research. And it it'll also like be one of those things where like I won't have to skip over something I might really be interested in. Because I know it's going to be too long or like I know there's going to be too much to cover or like you might even do the same thing. So I don't yeah. know what your methodology is like, but <laughs> no I know method I've, to this madness. I know I've purposely picked topics that weren't necessarily what I was like, ooh, that would be really fun because I'm like, that's going to take for like that. That is not going to leave enough time for Jonathan to also talk. So yeah. Like this one, I couldn't have done this in our other normal format. No, absolutely not. Or I would have had to like condense it and leave out a bunch of stuff. And I mean, like I left out stuff like there, there are other things involved in this. There's like, it's English history is fascinating and twisted and weird. And I love it. (laughs) All righty. Well, let's tell them how they can tell us if they like this format or not. Yeah. So you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Facebook. I almost said failed crits or other Oh, show. I was going to say, I thought you were said, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter at Facebook and Twitter. What? No, <laughs> I almost said our other show. Lols. Um, so you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfwit History. You can find our website at www.halfwit-history.com. And you can send us an email to halfwitpod at gmail.com. Yeah, so definitely let us know if you like this format or, you know, if you prefer the other format too, like let us know either way. Um, We definitely would prefer to stick with whatever people like the best. Yes. Um, That's the most important is what you guys like rather than what we're doing. Yeah, if there's definitely like a heavy preference one way or the other, we would much prefer to go with what you guys want more so than like what our flight of fancy is. So, um, but or, we got a year coming up, so might as well think about how we could alter our format if well, now that we've got a year under our belts. Yeah, especially if it's potentially a way to make everything better. So, yes, I'm all on board for improvement. Um, but also, if anyone has any suggestions for topics or any other sort of comment or feedback, we would absolutely love to hear from you. Absolutely. Uh, And if you want to give us feedback in the sense of helping us monetarily afford to do this all the time. A little bit of incentive. A little little bit (laughs) of of bribery. Yeah. (laughs) Want to make some deals like some crazy old Englishmen. Yeah. Send us a Ko-Fi and then just like in a note say like, do this topic, please. And I will be like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you got it. Uh huh. <laughs> That's a quick way to our hearts is yeah. <laughs> letting me quit my full time job. Also, send me pictures of cats and dogs. That'll make me really happy too. <laughs> Completely unrelated, but it will. Yes, it will. <laughs>
Okay, and uh, you can find that at ko-fi.com forward slash halfwithistory. And thank you to The Fisherman for the use of our theme song, Another Day. You can find their SoundCloud down in our show notes. Yeah, go check them out. It's pretty cool. Yes, very good guy. Lots of good stuff. Lots. (laughs) Is it fun fact time? It's fun fact time. Huzzah! I only got one, so I'm taking it. You go first, bud. So on April 8th of 1983, in front of a live studio, studio, in front of a live audience, David Copperfield makes the Statue of Liberty disappear. Oh, I saw that. Well, I didn't actually see it, see it, but I saw that as a thing. I'm like, when were you alive in 83 (laughs) or 80, what was it, 86? Wasn't the audience like 20 people or something like that? Yeah, it was a small audience. You can't have... A giant audience for something that is a point of reference illusion. That is true. It's a very good point. But still a very impressive illusion nonetheless. Yeah, that's that's very cool. Um, okay. My fun fact is from April 6, 1722. So I'm kind of keeping it in the same time frame. Well, sort of. Peter the Great, the Tsar of Russia, ends the tax on men with beards. Taxed? Tax. For beards? taxes for beards i'd gladly pay a tax (laughs) to keep a beard my assumption is peter the great had a beard and therefore didn't want to pay a tax on it that's my hard take on that must (laughs) be but yeah you gotta pay a tax for beards mine's getting pretty bushy in this quarantine era imagine if you had to pay like by the inch or whatever so like the longer your beard was the more you had to pay for it wouldn't be the only industry you pay by the inch Uh, oh (laughs) wow yikes Anyways, as always, I've been your halfwit. And I'm your historian. And we hope to see you next week. Bye.